This evening, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1021. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. As far as the reading of God's word. Now, one of the reasons why John writes this letter to the early church is to help them understand that they must fight against false teaching as it may creep into the church and how to fight against that false teaching when it may come into the church of Christ. Now, in considering our own time, I think that we could say that one of the biggest areas of temptation that the church faces is the temptation to gain credibility from those outside of the church. Frankly, to put too much weight upon what those outside of the church think of us. The most heinous thing that you can be called is intolerant and irrelevant. And so the temptation then would be for us then in the church to perhaps change our views, perhaps to compromise our convictions, to live like the world around us, and to embrace the values of the culture. But the reality is there will be tension between the church and the world until our Lord returns at the end of the age. Those who choose to identify themselves with the Lord Jesus will be seen as foolish. We saw that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. While those who belong to Christ Jesus must not love the world or anything in the world, as John says in this chapter back in verse 15. To love the world or anything in the world is to not have the love of the Father in Him. In verse 17, the world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And John, in this epistle, makes no apology for holding firm without compromise to the exclusive claims of the gospel. 
Not only from this passage here in chapter 2, but throughout this letter, John draws a very fixed and definitive line separating those who belong to the Lord Jesus and those who are opposed to Him. In fact, anyone who might deviate from the truth of God's Word, he calls an antichrist in verse 18. We'll come back to that in a moment, but notice that John has no problem using this very strong and very categorical language right from the very beginning of his argument. Anyone who might compromise the truth of the gospel is an antichrist. What is the best way to identify false teaching? Well, the best way to identify that which is false is very simply to know the truth as he says in verses 20 and 21. I was talking one time to a friend of mine who is a chiropractor. I don't know if this is true just of him or of all chiropractors, but while he was going to school, he spent the majority of his time studying x-rays of healthy spines from toddler all the way up to elderly folk and everyone in between so that when he saw someone who was struggling, who had physical pain, he could more quickly identify where the problem was. The more you know the truth, the better you will be able to identify something false when it comes your way. And so John lovingly exhorts the church to hold to the truth. And the truth, we could say, is synonymous with the word doctrine or the word dogma. Now, that word dogma is not a word that we use a whole lot in our vocabulary today in the culture in which we live. Those who hold it to dogma, again, are seen as closed-minded and perhaps irrelevant themselves. I love in Herman Bovink, the Dutch theologian's systematic theology, he has a four-volume set that is titled Reformed Dogmatics. And it's in that dogma, you see, that we hold to a fixed body of truth. We hold to it unwaveringly. We hold to it dogmatically. We hold to it without conviction, without apology, without compromise. This is not a bad thing, you see, because you have to have the right doctrine, the right system of truth in order to have the Christian faith. Now, there might be some who will say that it doesn't matter what you believe. All that matters is the way that you believe. All that matters is if you are a good person. But doctrine is necessary. It's vital for Christian living. The Bible presumes that everything that we do is based upon doctrine. Everything that we do in life is based upon some system of belief, you see. It's based upon what we believe about life itself, about God, about the person and work of Christ, about life eternal to come. And even the person who might say, doctrine is not important, all that matters is ethics, that itself is a doctrinal statement. And just as the church in John's day needed to know how to identify false teaching and how to handle false teaching when it came into their midst, the church in our age has the same task. Now, we've seen this as we've gone through the pastoral epistles on Sunday morning as Pastor McWilliams has been preaching through 1 Timothy. We'll see it in Titus. We'll see it in 2 Timothy. It's a theme that comes up over and over again, that we as the church throughout the age are charged to teach and to love the truth, and to pass it on from one generation to the next. And this is a high calling of those who serve in church office, for Mike and for Waller, for the rest of our session and diaconate. Now, it's been a long time since I've taken any sort of a science class, 
I can vaguely remember using litmus paper. Remember the little stick of paper that you would stick into your solution that you're studying in the lab to tell you whether that thing that you're studying is an acid or a base. And I don't remember what color it's supposed to turn, but the color that it turned, of course, would indicate what it is that you're studying. And the litmus test doesn't change the content of the solution. It merely reveals what it is that you're studying. Now, John is writing to the church in which there are some who claim to be in the Lord Jesus, but they are wrong. And John says there is a litmus test. You see, there is something objective, an objective test that you can use in order to determine truth from error. And what is this test that we ought to use to determine truth from error? Well, very simply, it's seen in verse 22. There is either a confession that Jesus is the Christ and an embrace of Him as the covenant Lord, or there is a denial of who Jesus is and who He claims to be in His person and work. And so you see it is doctrine, it is theology, it is dogma surrounding the identity of the Lord Jesus and what He has accomplished. That is the litmus test of a person's identity. And so John is saying, here is this core body of truth that you must know, this core body of truth that you must believe in order to be in Christ. Now, the reason why I think this is a good passage for us to consider briefly this evening on a night in which we install officers is because we need to have the same passion and love for the truth that John had. We need to be concerned about the same thing that he's concerned about. Because he writes as one who writes with apostolic authority. And we follow in that line of looking to that authority to guide us. And so what he loves, we are to love. Our church officers are called to know the truth. They are called to love the truth. They are called to teach the truth, to promote the truth. And by doing so, by teaching that which is true, and by striving to live themselves according to that which is true, they are at the same time fighting that which is false. And I can tell you from personal experience that both of these men, Mike and Waller, love doctrine, and they long to grow in their knowledge and in their application of such truth. I see Waller almost daily when he's not on his travels to Uganda as he works very quietly, very diligently just outside of my own study. I'll tell his children, sometimes I don't even know when he's in Uganda until we get these emails from him because he's so quiet anyway. And he sits there very methodically day after day working to translate the truth of God's Word into a language in Africa that I can't even pronounce. But Waller's desire is not simply to be true to the linguistics of the text as he translates from one language into another, but his desire is to know the truth, to know the theology behind that which he has the privilege of translating. And I had the privilege of traveling with a mic to Haiti last summer where he was my personal valet. (laughs) He drove me all the way to Miami, he carried my bags. He got me through customs and drove me all the way home, even letting me stop and buy Subway on the way back. (laughs) We get together periodically and have breakfast at a local greasy spoon because his wife Maggie doesn't like to go there with him. (laughs) And every time we get together, 
Mike cannot stop talking about how much he loves the truth, how grateful he is for the Lord's kindness and goodness to he and his wife Maggie and to their children and and extended family. Now, both Mike and Waller know the truth, desire to continue to grow in their knowledge of the truth, and to guard that truth in its integrity. You see, the way that the Apostle John would measure success in the church today would not be to consider numerical growth. this, This strikes so against us as American pragmatists, doesn't it? Because for us, success is all about numerical growth. But if John were here, he would say the most important thing is for the church to be faithful and for the leaders of that local church to be faithful to that body of truth. Growth is up to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Our job as church leaders is to love the truth, to seek to conform our lives to that truth, and to teach the truth faithfully week in and week out. Now, another thing that encourages us from this passage in verses 20 and 21 is the confidence that we can have of knowing that we hold not to a particular interpretation of the truth, but in fact to the very truth itself. You see, as much as the world around us might like to believe that truth is subjective, that truth is whatever you make it to be, the reality is there is one body of truth, one right dogma which we can hold to confidently. This is not to say that we have everything in our lives figured out perfectly. We are all still growing in our knowledge and understanding of the depth and riches of God's Word. But when your church officers take vows to uphold the Westminster Confession of Faith and its shorter and larger catechisms, it's because they believe out of conviction that that is the best summary of the doctrinal truth contained in the pages of Scripture. Notice how John addresses the one who might deviate from the truth of the gospel In verse 22, notice what John calls those who might stray from the truth of the Christian faith. He calls them liars. Now, that certainly doesn't sound very tolerant, does it? And yet John is saying, if you deny who Jesus is, who he says he is, you are a liar. If you say that Jesus is someone other than who he claimed in his earthly ministry, you are a liar, and you will have no part of the Father. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that if there is a confession of who Christ is, you can have confidence that you are holding the truth. Now, think for a moment about what John is saying here. If it's something that's a matter of opinion, you can't call someone a liar for holding a different opinion than you. If I say blue is the greatest color ever, and you say, no, it's red, it would be silly of me for me to call you a liar. But if I say something true... The Holocaust was a horrible event in human history in which millions of people died, and you say, no, the Holocaust didn't exist, I can call you a liar because you are denying that which is an historical fact. And so if John says to deny that Jesus is the Christ is a lie, he's not talking about something that's an opinion. He's not talking about something that is still up for debate and discussion. He's talking about something that is settled, that is factual in nature, that if you were to deny it, you are lying. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That is the factual element that must be held without compromise or else you are denying the gospel. 
At the heart of the Christian faith is this truth that must be confirmed. Jesus is God in flesh who lived a perfect life in your place, who died the death that you deserve, who rose from the dead on the third day, who appeared to the apostles and many others, who then ascended into heaven. And he had to do those things for me to be saved. It's only as I believe by faith that Jesus did such things for me that I am saved. Now, there are a lot of churches today that say you don't have to believe in miracles. You don't have to believe in the virgin birth. You don't have to believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The only thing that matters is when you look at Christ, are you inspired to live a better and more moral life? But John says this is not a matter up for debate. A distortion of this point is a completely different religion. Now, one final thing to touch on, and that is the importance of perseverance. Another thing that John really emphasizes throughout this letter is the comfort of assurance that we have if we are in union with Christ. Now, anytime you go through the Christian life and you're filled with periods of doubt or discouragement or frustration, wondering whether you really belong to the Lord and if He has purpose in the midst of your trials, turn to 1 John. It is a book that is filled with great comfort and assurance that you are His. If you look again at verse 23... How can we know for certain that we are His? Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. And so according to John, there are ways that we can know for certain we are His. Two things, confession and belief in verse 23 and abiding in Him or persevering in verse 24. Now, John is fond of using this word abide throughout his letter. Later in chapter, in chapter 4, he states that the Father abides in us and we abide in Him. And so it's this reciprocal nature of abiding. The Father abides in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, through the finished work of Christ within our hearts. And now the exhortation for us as His people is to abide in Him. We are called to persevere. We are called to believe and to keep on believing. We are called to trust and to keep on trusting in Him. Again, there may be times in life in which we struggle, times in which we wonder if God is really in control. But when it comes to the content of the gospel... We are to remain unwavering in our commitment to this body of truth and to be pointed back to the reality of our union with Christ, which gives us great assurance that we are His. These are the facts, you see, not matters of opinion. And so the calling for our church officers, you see, the calling for Mike, the calling for Waller, the calling for all of us is to grow in our understanding of the truth, to listen to the truth of God's Word, to love His truth, to seek to grow in our knowledge and understanding of His truth so that you will abide, so that you will be able to discern false teaching. This is the calling of every believer in the Lord Jesus, and especially for those who serve in church office, who are charged with the task of setting an example for the local church. Let's pray.
Our Lord, we thank you for the truth and integrity of your word, which you and your kindness and goodness have preserved for us throughout the ages. We thank you again for uh, the gift that you have given to your church of men who long to be faithful to your word of truth. And Lord, we pray that there might never be a day in which there are not those here at Covenant and throughout our denomination who long to hold to your word of truth, who love it, uh, who long to see it bear fruit in their lives more and more, uh, and who look for opportunities uh, to teach your word of truth to others whom they are privileged to shepherd and care for. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.